In Amy Bender's The Butterfly Lampshade, eight-year-old Francie lives with her single mother who is mentally ill. On the night her mother has a particularly dramatic psychotic break, Francie is set upon a long journey of a kind of self-preservation that we come to understand only as she confronts disturbing and confounding events. She believes that a butterfly has emerged from a butterfly lampshade, a beetle from a kid's drawing, emerges in three-dimensional real life, and roses from the pattern on a curtain can be picked up. Twenty years later, Francie is still trying to make sense of these incidents. Do they portend her own kind of break with reality and descent into mental illness? Do they make up part of her coping, or do they mean something else? This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We spoke to author Amy Bender about her latest novel, The Butterfly Lampshade. Give us a synopsis of the novel, just for folks who have not read it yet. Sure. Um, I guess what I would say is that the book is about a young woman, Francie, who is about 27, um, 28-ish. And she, she's con- reconsidering a moment in her life, a kind of major transition, um, where her mom had had a psychotic episode and she went to live with her aunt and ended up staying with her aunt. So there was this time in her life and she and her mother have a closeness, but it's also just very complex situation. And she goes to live with her aunt, uncle and cousin. And she just decides at this moment to kind of take stock of that experience. So it's kind of a a re uh, a sort of deep dive back into a particular transition And in some ways, I feel like the book is about a kind of close study of transition because she's really something big changed in her life. And there are these strange incidences that happened at that time, some kind of supernatural moments. And there's also just the the dislocated feeling of not quite knowing where your home is. Mm -hmm. And all these things are kind of under a microscope as she reconsiders this moment in her life. Yeah, the idea of transitions is such an important one here, but there's also like this, there's this blurred line between fantasy and reality. It's something that's so much a part of our childhood where adults are really pushing us sometimes toward fantasy and fantastical elements that that blur that line and then just as abruptly life or even our parents push us back toward reality. And this is something that happens to Francie. I mean, even as as she and her mother, Elaine, watch Toy Story 2 <laughs> um, and, and, and sort of share in, in that, in those elements of, you know, walking, talking toys, then Francie has to manage this idea of life and death uh, with her mother who has had this psychotic episode and you know, and, and everything that, that comes with that. Yes, exactly. And it's, I think there were these sort of points on a graph, I guess, that interested me to gather all together inside one book, the the graph, gathering a graph somehow, like that there would be exactly what you're saying about childhood, where the lines between fantasy and reality are 
chorus in a very wonderful, beautiful way. And children are kind of geniuses at moving between the imaginative play world and reality. And and then there's Francie's mom who um, actually does suffer from these episodes where her sense of reality does get genuinely skewed and, and it causes her a lot of um, distress. And so that being a totally other um, way of these these blurs happening. And then for Francie who, who has kind of some dark thoughts there also being a kind of blur between when are the thoughts going to be dangerous and when is she actually a threat to her mother or anyone else and when are they just thoughts and when is that okay and then the final point on the graph is just what are these moments of of uncanniness that we encounter in our lives that we can't explain that and then what happens i guess you know this is part of my own writing process is like what happens if i throw all these things together in a book and have them bump up against each other well, it worked. I'm glad to hear it. Of the uncanny and the the expectation of treating her like a little girl with her stuffed animals, you know, including the, uh, I love this negligible brown bunny, uh, <laughs> to use your words. Um, and the idea that her innocence is so corrupted. I mean, she's eight years mm -hmm. old and just happens as a as a matter of fact of her life and the people that are in her life I mean even the discussion of the fontanelle on baby Vicky's head yeah is a a power of suggestion <laughs> that yeah. stays with her for years and years I mean all the way into adulthood they're still sort of haunted by by this idea from childhood exactly and actually, when you say that, too, it makes me think of, although the fontanelle is in the book is kind of this vulnerability of, you know, anyone who's held a baby, it's so scary, right? You <laughs> yeah. see the little heartbeat through the <laughs> scalp of the baby. It's so vulnerable. But at the same time, when you say it, it reminds me, too, that it is, it also is this, this another um, blurred line between sort of mind and the world that yeah. you have the brain sort of slightly exposed. Um, but yes, that these suggestions are so potent to her that she can't shake them. And her own sometimes would think about um, the relationship between the mother and the daughter in this book as also the mother is just um, also very um, vulnerable to suggestion and that Francie the daughter is uh, overly powerful but you know she can freak out her mother very easily and what is that dynamic about what does that look like for both of them over time yeah and I'm thinking about that scene where Francie has to manage somehow this idea about the grandmother mm. sending her OBGYN a bottle of poison every year and sort of blaming him for the problems with her own daughter. I mean, it's really a lot for Francie to absorb, to see the way that the adults in her life are managing the terrible things that happen in, in lives, right? There was something about that scene with the grandmother and the poison and mm. then the way that Francie pushes back on the attitudes that sort of emerge that they have about uh, her poor mother as if she's ruined everybody's life. And of course, that's not true. 
that was also something that I thought the transition between a child's sort of fantasy world and the reality that they that they sort of have to just own up to and, and live in, but then also the terrible things that um, maybe are imposed on a child, that, and, and it's really too bad that it happens that way. Right, and that I often think that kids are the ones that are soaking up so much, but they're also putting a kind of honest mirror to what's in front of them. And that in this scene with the grandmother that you're talking about, the grandmother sort of almost like jokingly sends the doctor this bottle of poison because she's enraged because the doctor made an error. And, and like you say, she's sort of holding him wrongly accountable, but that also the, the, the cruelty and sort of aggression behind that act is not acknowledged by anyone, but Francie. And I think kids are often the ones that can sort of, see that and that the adults do get into kind of a behavioral pattern and without seeing what that actually is made of. And I think, I mean, that's part of the reason why I like writing about children is I feel like they are, they are very sensitive and astute beings in the world. Yeah. I started to look at Francie in this way of, is she an empath or is she, is she just very sensitive the way that we all are zeroing in on dust motes and, right. and and slants of light and being consumed by by those sorts of things um or is there a little bit more going on and i feel like you know she's also she's worried about her mom but also that she's somehow decided in a way that she's so susceptible to having the same issues yeah and and that's almost, I feel like it's scarier for her than some of these other supernatural things that are happening that she's sort of looking for explanations for just on her own. It's just somehow easier to bear than this idea that she's going to end up like her mom. Yeah, I think that's true, actually, that the supernatural events are sort of curious, but they're not maybe frightening to her in the same way as you know, the meaning of her own thoughts or the, or the worry in everyone, I think, in the family and just even in the mom herself, who actually is doing okay by the end of the book and has figured out a way to make things work for herself, um, which was important to me to show that, that she's also kind of finding her own road, but that still there's this kind of anxiety in the family and that, um, you know, of what's genetic, what gets passed along, what, what is unknown, what behavior is okay, what behavior is a signal of something else and how everything gets just charged and loaded with that, um, looked at a little more closely so that Francie's has her concerns, her aunt who she goes to live with has her concerns. You know, there's just, mm -hmm. there's concerns. There's a, very brief chapter in the book about um, her cousin having to go to the dentist because she has a certain kind of filling. And there was a point when they wondered if fillings would um, connect to radio or something like that. The, the metal fillings would have a way to connect to, mm -hmm. this is a true thing. Like to, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the science exactly, but that you would actually hear voices in your fillings and that there was a terror on the part of the ant that, if, if her child starts to hear voices because it's related to her cavity, she wants to be really clear that if there's any mental illness, that it's coming from 
it's not coming from her teeth. So mm-hmm. they go and they all get their cavities changed to composite. And, but there's, I guess what I'm hoping to convey in that is the level of sort of worry and vigilance in the family. So one of the many things I appreciate about the novel is like this, the structure of it is, I don't know if recursive is the right word. It's sort of like the way things are set up for the eight-year-old, from the eight-year-old's point of view. And we learn some things from an eight-year-old's point of view. And then she's in her 20s and it's sort of like this, the same situations are being relived or she's thinking about them. You zoom in, you zoom out, and it's it's a very interesting structure. And, if, and I kept thinking about it as realistic. <laughs> it's sort of like it it is like when Francie is eight, we're eight, you know, and we sort of take in her world that way. And then when she's in her twenties and she's describing something, it's it is sort of that you know certain things come in more lucidly or vividly or pointedly. And certain things fall away. I found that so mm. interesting that uh, that recursiveness of of the structure of there's a there was a certain pattern of that that I really appreciated. I could really sort of see Francie as not two characters, but but exactly that like this point of view had had morphed, and this is the way I think adults <laughs> really experience the world and memory. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, it's really nice to hear that because it's, you know, I feel like I'll kind of try to lean into what the book, um, where the writing is sort of naturally flowing. And there was this, I mean, I think recursive makes sense. There was this kind of quality of revisiting and circling and, but it always felt I could, I would be able to feel engaged with it, which is like my only guide as a writer is just to follow where the work feels engaging to me, even if it's straying from any, and often it is straying from any plan. My planning mm-hmm. is, is just generally doesn't work. So, so instead it being this kind of um, looking and relooking and looking again and looking deeper and finding a new thing. And when do you, you know, when in memory do we have a picture in our minds and then something widens and we see something that we didn't see before and how does that change our sense of things? There's, I was just reading, Public Space has been doing these book groups all year Mm. online during the pandemic and um, I had the pleasure of leading a beautiful novel by William Maxwell called So Long See You Tomorrow and it's also about memory and about grief and but there's a memory that the that the author talks about in like the second chapter and revisits at the end. And it's just slightly different at the end, but it's a kind of major change. But I and I've read the book many times and only this time did I really take in this change, which I I feel like I won't say concretely in case someone feels like <laughs> that's a great but, that's a great novel. But, it's, but it does feel accurate, I think, to my experience of memory, too, which is like you just things get filled in and and we see a different perspective. And and so that that kind of revisiting felt important ultimately to this book. I like the idea of the tent. So there's this thing that Francie's mother does she sets up these tape recorders in different rooms of their apartment 
and she'll she puts she sort of tents paper over the recorders as if she's hiding them <laughs> and then mm-hmm. we'll put her hand under the pa- under the tent to turn it on or off or, or turn the tape over and then there's this tent there's a real tent yeah. <laughs> on a balcony yeah, exactly. a memory t- and i just even those kinds of 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 echoes i and even if they were, if they're not deliberate, they're deliberate, they're not deliberate, you pick up on them or you don't as a reader. Um, yeah. There was just this extra thing there about childhood and, and tents, you know, and forts and, uh, and you know, living room forts and tents. And the way that yeah. um, Francie returns to that in her 20s with Vicky, you know, on the balcony of her own apartment uh, all these years later that I just loved. And it was sort of this very quiet, isolated bubble that she could enter, really believing that that was going to be the way that she could zero in on some of these memories. There's a bit of a, even a kind of magical quality in that idea that like, we can sit and the memories can sort of come up, but they sort of do for her. And it, but it does, it has like a little it's like a talisman in a way. And you're right. I mean, that it was not a deliberate connection to have the little tents over the tape recorders and to have her then enter a tent. But there was one point late in my own sort of rereadings of the drafts that I saw that too and was surprised. And, you know, the writing process is so interesting. And oh, yeah. Mysterious in so many <laughs> ways. Um, but but that ultimately she is there is a parallel there are recordings of what was happening and she is kind of trying to create some sort of internal document of a time that was such a blur I think that was the other sort of project of it for her and for me was to think of how in childhood things they move emotionally and they move I think texturally and viscerally but they're not articulated in a certain way and and that in my mind part of a processing or part of adulthood is then what happens when those things solidify a little bit and become more real to you and more known mm-hmm. and how do you take it from there I like the way um the idea of this uh, sort of olfactory I don't know if it's a hallucination uh, um, this olfactory hallucination that comes up with the whiff of newsprint as the, quote, precise Mm. smell of dislocation for her. Mm. And it's something that she comes to, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 pages from the end of the novel. And so much has happened, so much has gone on on the train um, and in her life. And, of course, the idea of smell and taste being so close to those, you know, those Proustian ideas of, of memory. And I, I found that so interesting, too, because, because it, I think because it came later and I felt like she was making sense of that part of her life, you know, this sort of sensory imagery connection in the way that, that smells affect us, smells from mm-hmm. childhood, um, and, and that it was that of all things, right? Like the newsprint of these seek a word search a word um, books that she had to do. (laughs) And I was thinking also about the train and her idea of rejecting going on an airplane to, to California. 
because she didn't want to see the blurred landscape out the window, which we know she wouldn't have seen it that way. And she prefers the train, which in my mind is the, the view out the window of the train is a lot more blurry right. in the air. And I just thought, I just felt like, you know, these ideas that she has that then she has to just on her own come to uh, the discovery and, and the getting over it. And I loved seeing her, uh, you know, for instance, uh, not to give too much away, but at a certain point in the novel, <laughs> on a plane, right? I love this idea of uh, the way that she by herself um, overcomes these great big fears in her life just on her own. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I love what you said too about the smell and the taste and, and yeah, how Proust gave us that sense of, or the reminder that it's such an access point to memory. And yeah, I guess it's true that she finally does when she's on a plane, just that the reality of a plane that people had insisted to her was not blurry like she imagined, but the the terror of it was so real. Yeah. The, the blur and her life being so constant that any risk of amplifying it wasn't worth it until later. And then it was okay. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I guess right, that's just of interest to me too. It's like, at what point can something get looked at and, and what is, what's the factor of time in that too? You know, a certain amount of time and something becomes, um, look at a ball sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, even <laughs> in thinking about the freeze tag game, she's, you know, ev- everyone else is all a blur running all around her. And she's the one that decides that she's she's going to be frozen. She's going to be. And that that's the way that she's at that point and, and really throughout just her sense of being is she's so watchful. And she's so still, and uh, and yet all of these things are happen- happening in her mind. So it's like this this crazy freeze right. tag that's going on. So I just I really just appreciate all this with motion and flying and and the train. Tell me about. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to hear your thoughts. Oh no, <laughs> I love this book. Shrina is someone to whom Francie continually refers to as the babysitter for a good chunk of the novel. And she calls Mm -hmm. Stan's relative who shepherds her from uh, Portland to Burbank, the steward. And these are people that are really important for this journey that she's on. And she doesn't really say their names too much. I kept noticing this. Mm -hmm. It felt like she was doing a little bit of wall building, you know, locking that door as she's wont to do that. And I found it so interesting. There were, there was a lot of goodwill extended to her in her childhood. There's a lot of love and there's a lot of goodwill that so many people around her, I mean, even um, her friend's mom, you know, (laughs) with the booster seat in the car and, um, and all of this. And I just, that's another thing that I, that I was really struck by, these these people in our childhood that this is very realistic these people in our childhoods that are you know part of this village 
and they all know her story. Unfortunately, it's a sad story. These were not empty moments, as we learn. They're moments that are just so loaded with meaning that Francie remembers, every, it seems like every second of of it, the fringy scarf <laughs> and, and Hattie the cat and, you know. Well, and maybe in that way too, which I think is kind, it's at least true for me if I think of, you know, times that are more intense, are more kind of locked down in terms of detail of memory than, than the sort of easy flowy times, which kind of have a more like general quality than, you know, so something has to be heightened in some way and then the memories click in more clearly. But yeah, I mean, I really, I was aware that like I wanted, I wanted the adults to sort of step up for her and I wanted there to be sort of a kindness. Of course, there doesn't have to be in, in the situation. It could have happened very differently, but that, but that the focus for me was on a very internal shift in the character and that this, the, conflict and the worry wasn't about threats from other people but was just about her own worry about herself yeah so I just I wanted the other people to be um to really to be able to and like you say to have their own perception of her struggle and and I'm imagining her going through this transition fairly checked out so not being able to absorb the kindness directly but to be absorbing it 20 years later to like be taking in uh -huh. oh you know what did this person do and and in that way I think you're right about the the lack of naming that she both she knows Shrina's name but Shrina's also kind of this role she's playing a role and there's something solid about calling her the babysitter like she knows exactly where she fits mm -hmm. and um the steward whose name turns out to maybe have possibly been Stuart, but <laughs> unclear you know like, he's but that so that they fit sort of like a tail and then they maybe start to become a little bit hopefully more real and there's you know contact made in a different way later in the book and that um sort of the, there's the kind of story of childhood and the characters and the roles they play. And then there's the breaking apart of that story and reaching out to people as an adult and seeing what they're actually like and connecting in a different way. And that changes the memories, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and they, these are not imposing figures. Like they didn't want to like, I don't know, adopt her or, you know, keep her right. or, and, um, you know, with Shrina, it was, you know, this little loft area and, and seeing the cat coming down and the dish drain and sort of like these things that were, and I think this, I think you use this word in the book, the things that were sort of anchoring her to the space because she, yes. she really, really needed that. And so it seemed like, like these were the opportunities for those things, you know, for, the steward to, you know, stand in front of the, um, in between uh, Francie and, and, and other people, you know, who had, had come up to her and just those sorts of things that they were protecting her, I guess, but it was more like they represented a, a kind of a, um, of an anchoring in whatever space she happened to be in. I felt like that was really a neat thing to, to come across in the novel. Oh, I'm glad. And it's, I think it's absolutely right. And it's, 
it it goes back to the freeze tag that you were talking about earlier where she as a character like as she became clear to me on the page as a character this moment of other kids running around a playground and playing games and throwing them their bodies around and Francie staying very still as a way to to take stock of herself and to know she's there that in the same way to be looking around at this apartment of the babysitter and to be and to find such grounding in the different objects and mm -hmm. and similarly you know to be noticing exactly what the steward is doing on the train like that these observations serve a very like a like a very important purpose to her that the the heightened observations feel like they are placing her in a world that something in her uh, at any moment feels like it could slip away. And so there's kind of a, and, and in the act of going over the memories is an act then of re, it, I almost sometimes felt like it was her putting herself into the past where she had not fully existed for herself, even though it had happened, you know, but she was sort of inserting herself into these events that had happened. And in that way, they become part of her and then can be moved past. But until that happens, um, they're so fleeting and not she's not quite in them yet. Mm -hmm. I haven't talked about the butterfly and the beetle and the rose, and it's not for any other reason except there's just so much to talk about, even though these are some really important elements of the novel. So they are these things that that seem to be sort of inanimate in a space like a the, like the lampshade or a drawing or curtains, and then suddenly these objects are there. There's so much here that's just enigmatic and mysterious and surreal. Mm -hmm. In the next beat, I'm thinking, yeah, like people. <laughs> What's more enigmatic and mysterious and surreal than, you know, all of us walking around right now? And I, right, I, I kept mean, sort of yeah. looking at this idea of of what these objects... I, I feel sometimes like, like there are readers out there who sort of offhandedly reject surreal elements in literary fiction or um, or they sort of dance around them or they ignore them <laughs> and and yeah. um and that's just that doesn't work but i also feel like like it would be okay if your reader doesn't fully render some defined meaning because it it, it because neither does the character i mean it's just right. the mysteries of life i'm just thinking about how magical this is and how necessary and then how, and then I'm drawn back to the idea of oh how real those things are um, mm. for an eight-year-old or for somebody who's thinking back to that and has and has never resolved the issue even at 27 or 28. Yeah I mean it's it's actually quite beautiful to hear you say it that way because I think Yes, there. I think I feel like the thing that I'll trust about an image is just if it feels right on the page. And if I can sort of bear to reread it is my gauge that when I'm looking back over pages I've written, it, it shows very quickly what things have no 
charge to them. I think George Saunders says charge or juice. I can't remember his word for it, but just that the images, lines, words sort of come packed or not packed. And if they're not packed, they fall away. And I could feel that the, the butterfly and the beetle and the rose had this sort of resonance, but the meaning is less important to me, actually. Like what I'm, I'm hoping that the reader will be interested in sort of dwelling with me and with Francie with these images, these traversings, these objects that move from two-dimensionality in the world of objects into the world of life but but are dead and and in these realms that Francie is moving between and that her mom is moving between and in this kind of blurry line between fantasy and reality that there are some concrete examples and that they are ultimately not going to be fully explainable and that that's important to me. Like, I just don't, I don't want to create an equation where a reader is like, aha, I will now check off the meaning box because it just, it's, it's so much, I just want it to have some, to create some feeling, whatever that is, some, some experiential feeling. And that, I guess my hope is then to say, if, you know, if someone feels worried, they're not getting it or that there's something to get to instead redirect and say, you know, what does it make you think about? What did it make you feel? What might be a moment from your life where you felt something sort of traverse a boundary that didn't feel traversable? And what was that? And what is Francie sort of um, trying to sort through? Amy Bender, thank you so much for talking to me. I so appreciate it. Oh, Yvette, what a true pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your close reading so much. Amy Bender is the author of The Butterfly Lampshade. This has been Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Brizotti composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>